0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Now that body cam footage of a police shooting in Colorado Springs has been released, what goes into deciding if officers should be charged? Then, what's next for John Hickenlooper as he switches from a presidential bid to a potential Senate campaign? Plus, what we know as snowboarding started out at
1: something else. My mom, I remember her leaning out the back door of the cottage saying, oh, you should call that a snurfer. Yeah, for snow and surf. Then,
0: Jewel may be known for her music, but it's her embrace of wellness that has redefined
2: her life. Nobody, no matter what your situation is, can make you betray your own values. She shares her personal journey. I think music is a big part of wellness. Um, We all use it as free therapy. It helps all of us feel better. I hear the clock it's 6 a.m. I feel so far from where I've been
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The investigation into the fatal police shooting of an African-American teen in Colorado Springs continues to raise questions about what happened. The autopsy report shows 19-year-old Devon Bailey was shot three times in the back as he ran from officers and once in the back of the arm. On Thursday, the police department released body camera footage of that foot chase and shooting. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce joins us now. Dan, where does this investigation stand? Has the report been given to the district attorney yet for review?
3: Yes, uh, we learned that the county sheriff's office handed off the results of the investigation, that report, to the district attorney Thursday afternoon. This will um, not be released publicly. Now, the Bailey family, they're calling for a separate investigation, saying the sheriff's office and Colorado Springs Police just uh, work too closely day to day for an unbiased examination of the case to be possible.
0: And we should note the El Paso Sheriff's Office is doing the investigation at the request of the Colorado Springs Police Department. Bailey's family has been calling for the officer's body camera footage to be released. It shows what happened from the viewpoints of different officers. Can you explain what led up to the shooting? Uh,
3: Yes, and that footage has been released. So police They were responding to an armed robbery call in Southeast Colorado Springs on August 3rd. They encountered Bailey and his 19-year-old cousin, Lawrence Stoker, they were walking on a neighborhood street. So here's audio from that body camera video of one of the officers speaking to Bailey and Stoker leading up to the moment of the shooting.
4: So we got a report of two people, similar descriptions, possibly having a gun, all right? So don't reach for your waist. We're going to just check and make sure that you don't have a weapon, all right? Hands up! Hands
3: up! Let me describe those last five seconds or so uh, where there was that silence. You heard the officer say they were going to check to see if Bailey had a weapon. At that point, a second policeman approaches Bailey from behind to do so.
0: And Bailey takes off running.
3: Yeah, which you could hear right at the end there. The officers yell for Bailey to put his hands up before quickly firing eight shots. Now, we know from the autopsy report, which you mentioned at the beginning, four of those shots hit Bailey. He then falls. You see blood quickly start to pool from his wounds. Officers handcuff him, and here's some more audio of them searching him, which— As a warning, it it might be disturbing because you can hear Bailey moaning
4: in the background. He's got a gun in his pants. Me, I can't get to it. Hold on, I'm cutting the pants off. Stay with me, brother.
3: And Bailey died at the hospital later that
0: evening. The Bailey family lawyers believe the body cam footage shows that he was not a threat to officers.
3: They say the video uh, doesn't show any evidence of Bailey being a threat to either the officers or anyone else, that Bailey was just trying to flee the officers, and and that alone is not enough justification for the use of deadly force. Here's the family's attorney, Darrell Kilmer. The video shows that he was doing everything within his power in the six or eight or ten steps that he could take to get away.
0: We're going to talk about the law and how much leeway law enforcement officers have in this situation with the former district attorney in just a moment. Before we do that, we should note that the police department is not commenting further on this case. Bailey's funeral is today, and Dan, you spoke with a family friend and a pastor? Uh,
3: Yeah, and uh, Bailey's wake was last night. Uh, Pastor Terry Thomas, he he went to that wake, and he says he saw many who approached Bailey's open casket, especially the young people he saw,
5: in Thomas's words, they just looked broken. I can see the questions in their heart. I can see the thought bubbles a little bit about why did this have to happen? And it's, of course, the tears and the moaning and the wailing is going on as an outward expression of what they're feeling on the inside right now.
0: We should note that this has touched a nerve in the community. You reported on protests shortly after the shooting. Have tensions settled down?
3: And well, and there have been pr- further protests since those initial ones as well. I, I do think it had calmed down a, a little bit, but you know that that body camera video that was released by the city, it is really, truly shocking to watch. And it is really graphic. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if that video heats things back up um, as the city waits to see if the officers involved are charged with anything. Thank you, Dan. Uh, you're welcome, Avery.
0: CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce on the investigation into the shooting death of a 19-year-old Devon Bailey in Colorado Springs. It's up to the district attorney to decide whether any officers should be charged in this case. For perspective on what goes into that kind of decision, Mitch Morrissey is here with us. He was Denver's elected district attorney for 12 years, but spent a total of 34 years in the DIS office. Welcome. Good morning. People's reaction to the body cam footage might be, this man was shot in the back, running away from police. That means there should be charges. Is it that clear cut?
5: Well, first of all, let me say that uh, my heart goes out to the Bailey family. Um, no one should have to go through this. Uh, it's not that clear cut. Uh, every police shooting that I was involved in investigating, it was probably over a hundred. Um The video cameras, those body cameras only came into play in the last few years, but they're only part of the analysis that a district attorney has to go through in determining if criminal charges can be brought or not. They're a piece of evidence. They're a very important piece of evidence. Uh, We would even slow them down so we could see each and every frame of these videos when we had video. Uh, and they play an important role in making the decision that you make, but they often are, or well, they're always, like your reporter said, very graphic. Uh, they're horrible things to watch. There are people being, there's a person being killed on that video, and uh, it, it is, uh, it just impacts your community uh, very emotionally. But the district attorney has to sit down then and analyze what happened, the complete picture every piece of evidence, and then apply that to the law of the state of Colorado and make a decision if filing can be done.
0: And Colorado has something called a fleeing felon law, and that complicates it. I wonder if you could explain that a little bit.
5: Yeah, Colorado has had a free a fleeing felon law since the common law days. And basically in the old common law days, uh, just about anybody could use deadly force to stop a fleeing felon. And in fact, uh, in law school, I remember saying they used hearing, and they used to encourage citizens to use force against felons. Uh, but in Colorado, we have a very specific fleeing felon statute. It's very strict, very limited, um, and it is codified as a statute. So we no longer rely on the common law. We use a statute that says when. A police officer is justified in using deadly force. And um, when you sit down and analyze that, sometimes it just means what kind of a call is the officer responding to? What kind of a crime does the officer have probable cause to believe has happened? And when you are talking about a crime like aggravated robbery, and that was the call here is my understanding, with a weapon... You had a victim that was robbed at gunpoint. He was knocked to the ground. Uh, he called the police immediately. He not only gave a description of these two individuals, but he named them, uh, some people that he knew, and the officers responded. So they're responding in on an aggravated robbery charge, and that's very significant in the analysis if the fleeing felon statute applies to these officers.
0: The attorney for Bailey's family points to language from a 1985 U.S. Supreme Court ruling that says, quote, the use of deadly force to prevent the escape of all felony suspects, whatever the circumstances, is constitutionally unreasonable. It is not better for all felony suspects die than that they escape. Are officers generally given a wide berth to decide what is reasonable?
5: Well, under this Colorado statute, which actually is almost exactly the same as the Tennessee statute that they upheld in Garner. Remember now, there was a statute there that talked about using deadly force when you on a violent felon. Uh, Garner wasn't a violent felon. Uh, There was no indication that Garner was armed, and it wasn't a criminal case. It wasn't a charging decision by a district attorney. No officer in the Garner case was charged. The question was, could Garner's family sue the state of Tennessee for damages for violating his constitutional rights for shooting him? So the Supreme Court actually upheld the statute, which would mean that the Colorado statute is constitutional that allows a police officer to shoot a violent felon, someone that has they have reason to believe, has a gun or has just used a gun on another citizen. And so Garner doesn't really fit here. And in fact, you can look at the language of Garner, and it is clearly right on point in this situation. But Garner is a nonviolent felon, unarmed. And this was officers responding to a violent crime where a gun was involved. And they certainly had a reasonable suspicion to contact these individuals. As they went through that contact, one of them admitted that he didn't assault the victim. Uh, So they had the right guys. Now the question is, where's the gun? And um, unfortunately, it resulted then in uh, Mr. Bailey fleeing and then they found the gun after they shot him. But clearly in Colorado, Uh, This is the kind of crime that a police officer can use deadly force to prevent an escape.
0: And on the other side of that, we heard from Bailey's family attorney who believes that Bailey was not presenting a threat. Um, Just in the few moments before we wrap up, I wonder how rare is it for an officer to be charged with an on-duty shooting in Denver?
5: Now, remember, just the thing that you said about the threat Bailey does not have... Nobody has to be presenting a threat to the officer. It's the officer coming in on a crime that has happened where there is a weapon involved and the person tries to escape. They don't have to be threatening the officer at all. They can be in a full bore running away from the officer. Uh, It's the crime that the officer's responding into that is the critical piece here. Not if the person is threatening the officer or not. That's just not relevant when it comes to the fleeing felon statute.
0: Well, we're about out of time, and thank you so much for your perspective. I so appreciate you coming in today.
5: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Mitch Morrissey was the Denver District Attorney for 12 years, and in 2017, he spent a total of 34 years with the office. On Thursday, John Hickenlooper dropped out of the race for the Democratic presidential nomination with this video announcement.
4: A little over six months ago, I announced my run for president. In almost every regard, this journey has been more exciting and more rewarding than I ever imagined. Although, of course, I did imagine a very different conclusion. Now today, I'm ending my campaign for president, but I will never stop believing that America can only move forward when we work together Don't tell me that we can't figure out how to lower prescription drug costs or tackle climate change. Don't tell me we have to accept the number of gun deaths or the reduced job prospects of far too many Americans. I know that when people work hard enough to get past their differences, you can make amazing progress.
0: But Hickenlooper may be making a quick return to the political spotlight. He says he's seriously considering running for the Senate in 2020, taking on incumbent Republican Corey Gardner. Joining us to talk about all the twists and turns is CPR producer Anthony Cotton, who has followed Hickenlooper throughout his campaign. Hi, Anthony. Hey, Avery. When can we expect an official repurposing of all those Hickenlooper 2020 signs?
6: I don't expect an announcement today, but it wouldn't surprise me if it came within a week. There's certainly a lot of circumstantial evidence that it's a done deal. In the video we heard announcing his withdrawal, he cited all the people who have approached him about running. And there's certainly been a lot of people out there nationally, even like Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, who have consistently been in his ear about it. But Hickenlooper has
0: told us on more than one occasion that he didn't have any desire to run for the Senate. This is Hickenlooper in January before he officially entered the presidential race.
4: What I'm good at, what I really enjoy the most, what I find rewarding is building a team. And setting high goals and actually operating things, and whether you're running a restaurant or a city or a state or a country, is a great challenge and the great opportunity. As a senator, most senators don't – you don't become even the vice chair of a, of a reasonably important committee until your third term. You know, I, by the time I got to my third term, I'd be 80.
0: As recently as last month, Hickenlooper told us he had to be 100 percent focused on the presidential race in order to succeed – What's changed over the last few weeks?
6: I think he realized that there was no viable path to the presidential nomination. He wasn't going to qualify for next month's third debate in Houston. He didn't have enough individual donors or reached the necessary threshold in polling. He also has less than a million dollars remaining in the campaign, and that wasn't going to improve anytime soon.
0: Does he become the immediate favorite among Democrats in the Senate race?
6: That's the really fascinating part to me. Uh, Nationally, there's no question about it. Again, people like Schumer have been after him to run against Gardner even before he announced he was running for president. Uh, Locally, however, it's a different story. Polling shows he might move to the top of the dozen or so Democrats who have announced they're running for the nomination. But that group has some pretty heavy hitters locally in Colorado politics. People like Mike Johnston and Andrew Romanoff and Angela Williams. After Hickenlooper said he was dropping out of the presidential race, Williams issued a statement that read, I'm sorry Governor Hickenlooper's presidential race didn't work out, but he spent his time in Iowa running for president and governor working and campaigning against bold progressive solutions that will move Colorado and the country forward. If he's going to switch gears and run for the Senate, he has a lot of explaining to do to Colorado voters. This won't be a coronation. So if that's indicative of what he'll be facing, things are going to get very interesting.
0: There's also the idea of what people who may have endorsed Hickenlooper for president while endorsing other candidates in the Senate will do now.
6: Yeah. uh, Again, that group includes some pretty big names locally. This is former Denver Mayor Wellington Webb. He actually brought Hickenlooper onto the stage at Civic Center Park in Denver the night Hickenlooper officially joined the presidential race.
7: Well, I've already endorsed Mike Johnson for the Senate race, and so I will not switch I planned on being with Higginlooper through all these debates, through Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. And I signed on with Mike Johnson. You know, I said I was here for the long haul. So when I signed on with someone, I'm here for the long
6: haul. Now, I spoke with Webb on the phone Thursday afternoon after Higginlooper withdrew from the race, and I asked him his thoughts. He began with his views on the more than 20 presidential candidates who were in the race.
7: Well, I think it's a tough race uh, when you have that many people running. I also think it's a difficult race when you are trying to stake out a position in the uh, middle uh, and you have so much of the candidates and the party driving policy to the left. Uh, And I think as a moderate, um, John... uh, just didn't have the national recognition in terms of raising enough money to com- compete nationally with these other folks that have been running off and on for years that have uh, generated national following to generate enough money for them to continue to run a campaign. Uh, running for president a difficult deal. And I think, you know, John, you know, was respectable. He was his race. And I think that there'll be other people that uh, are not going to be, uh, uh, that are also going to be finding it difficult to stay in the race as the uh, requirements continue to, stiffen- to get on the debate stage. Now, one of those people who seem to be having trouble is Senator Michael Bennett. He is not qualified for the debate
6: yet. Are you backing him now?
7: Yeah, I'm a Colorado guy, and the uh, and I spent uh, money to both. John Hickenlooper, because, you know, we <laughs> like Native Sons, and uh and John Hickenlooper, we sent money to his campaign, and we did the same thing to Michael Bennett. Um, we think it's important to support local folks, and be together to support you. That's not to suggest that we haven't talked and that to other people, as well as have inquiries from their staff uh, about, you know, encouraging us to sit down and come out to hear other speakers.
6: Now, as it turned out, Webb and his wife, Wilma, actually hosted a luncheon on Thursday for Tom Steyer, the philanthropist who entered the presidential campaign last month. Getting back to Hickenlooper, one of the challenges he was facing as a candidate for president was running as a moderate during the primary season. Besides dealing with other candidates like Bennett and former Vice President Joe Biden, who were also in that same lane, there was also, there's also the idea that at least initially in a presidential campaign, most of the buzz goes to candidates on, from the liberal wing of the party. And then it moves closer to the center after the nomination is decided. I asked Webb if that kind of sentiment hurt Hickenlooper.
7: Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes when you're trying to be in the middle, get hit from the right and the left, and our party has definitely swung more to the left, and a lot of those issues that um, we're seeing far left four years ago, eight years ago, is, seen, is now seen as um, moderate. I know I was on a radio show the other day and said, how could you be supportive for some of these positions like the public option on health care and Medicare for all, but in this? Communistic or socialistic, and I said you mean like Medicare and social uh, Social Security, um, because you could make the same argument about them that those programs have been well tested and have served this country well. So I think that when John announced, um, he knew it would be a, a, a tough race, fun race, difficult race. But enjoyable at the same time. I don't think there's any regrets. He sent me a text early, uh, early this morning, late last night, in terms of what was going to happen today. That uh, I'm proud that uh, um, you know, we endorsed him and proud that uh, uh, we gave him uh, support. And now the uh, <laughs> and now the strenuous triathlon goes on. a, strenu-
0: a strenuous triathlon indeed. Thanks, Anthony. You're welcome. CPR producer Anthony Cotton has been following the presidential campaign of former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper from the start. Hickenlooper ended his attempt to win the Democratic nomination on Thursday. Hickenlooper says he's seriously considering running for the U.S. Senate against incumbent Cory Gardner in 2020. Colorado Matters continues after the break with snowboarding. Before it was snowboarding. I'm Avery Lill. You're with CPR News. CPR News.
8: Colorado, it's 2019. Weed is legal. It's not that unusual
2: to see cannabis yoga classes, guided cannabis meditations, even cannabis churches. Now, using cannabis to meditate or worship is not a new thing. Rastafarians have been using it for almost 100 years. But in this new world of legalization,
5: what changes when we're talking about weed and religion? Find out on the latest episode of CPR's new podcast, On Something, on Apple Podcasts or wherever
0: you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lil. Let's go back a year to Pyeongchang, South Korea, after just after legendary snowboarder Sean White made his last run in the halfpipe.
3: Is this enough from Sean White? It would be one of the most memorable, historic, legendary runs in snowboarding history. Once again, questions asked of Shaun White. Has he answered them? Yes, he has! Shaun White takes gold in Pyeongchang in the most emphatic fashion,
0: the last run of the day. So there you are. Snowboarding is a world-famous sport in a multi-billion-dollar industry. It wasn't always that way. What became the snowboard started out in a backyard as a toy called the Snurfer. It was invented by a man named Sherman Poppin, who died recently at the age of 89. I'm joined by his daughter, Wendy Poppin of Fort Collins. Welcome.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on, Avery. First, I just want to say sorry for your loss. Yeah, thank you very much. He was an amazing person.
0: Let's talk about him. How did the Snurfer come about?
1: The Snurfer, (laughs) the Snurfer was a necessity. It was that we needed to invent that on that Christmas day in 1965. My mother was pregnant with my youngest sister, Julie, and my mom was having some complications with the pregnancy. It was Christmas day. We opened all our, our presents, ate all the candy canes, and we're pretty much bouncing off the walls. We lived in a little cottage on Lake Michigan. And my mom um, told my dad, get these kids out of the house. They're driving me crazy. So he <laughs> did what any <laughs> what any good husband would do, bundled, bundled us all up and threw us out the back door. And he came out with us and we started playing on this little sand dune behind our house because it had snowed a lot. And we didn't really have snow toys and my dad kept wanting to we had a saucer and he tried to stand on that which didn't work very well and then we tried a sled but the sled runners went through the snow to the sand and he tried all kinds of things to slide around then he went to the garage and pulled out one of my tiny skis with the cub co-bindings and tried to slide down that sand dune on that but his big feet hung off so he went back into the shed and nailed my two favorite skis together um, at the tip and the tail with a little piece of wood, and slid down the hill on that. And it slid really fine. It was fun. So we played with it, played with it. And I remember my mom leaning out the back door of the cottage saying, "You should call that a snurfer, <laughs> for snow, snow and surf," because he'd been, you know, he'd been kind of looking at the dunes like a wave, kind of. So yeah, so that's, you know, we kept playing and playing that day and then the neighbors got involved and there was only one, you know, little nailed skis together. So we got some um, water skis and started sliding down on those. And then, and then he he's an inventor. So we just started tinkering and tinkering and fine tuning things. So yeah, that was, it was born out of a necessity that day. That's for sure. And I guess if there was, <laughs> If we weren't so amped up crazy kids, it wouldn't have been invented. But How we were funny. <laughs> so you had these
0: kitty skis yeah. and they're stuck together. How did I think that there was a tether and a rope involved? Tell me a little bit more about that, about just developing it to the next step.
1: Right, right. So so we got water skis and he started playing with it. The water skis were too flat, so he you know, he started trying to make it a little beveled. And my grandfather, his dad, um, saw us playing on it one day, and it it didn't have much control because it was all over the place. So my grandfather suggested that we put a rope on the tip of this thing so you could kind of hang on to it. And it would not only help you change direction and steer, but also if you fell off the thing, which happened a lot, um, you wouldn't let go of it. It wouldn't fly down the hill. So my dad started just tinkering, tinkering, and went to the um, to Brunswick Company, which was in Muskegon, who makes bowling balls and bowling alleys. And um, he pa- first of all he he patented the word snurfer, and um, drew up some plans and went to went to Brunswick to try and sell him the idea. And your dad worked at a local
0: welding com- welding supply company, and he worked his mm-hmm. way up. In fact, he owned the company by the end. of was
1: he mechanically inclined you know yes to a certain extent um i think he just liked taking things further uh, he invented something in the weld- welding supply industry which i probably couldn't describe to you but um he just he liked thinking outside the box and um yeah so that's that's where that's where the snurfer came from. He just he just wanted to make it better. He wanted to make it be able to turn and and uh, you know have more control. But you know what? His whole his whole line of of doing this was he wanted to make a toy. He wanted to make a a cheap toy that people could afford and didn't need big mountains and chair lifts. He's an avid skier, so we would, you know, we were all raised skiing, but he wanted a toy that everybody could enjoy and everybody could afford.
0: And you mentioned Brunswick. That's the company that makes bowling balls. How did they get into the Snurfer?
1: Well, they also make bowling alleys, so they're really good with the laminated wood thing. So that's where they got into the Snurfer because they had all the production to be able to create the Snurfer.
0: And how did your dad convince them to get into this?
1: That's a good question. Um, I do remember the day that he took me to this little golf course that had a tiny hill, and there's a bunch of suits from Brunswick. And then my dad and I just, my dad just said, okay, just keep going up and down the hill. Snurf down, bring it up. Snurf down, bring it up. So I was just his little trained pet that day and just kept going up and down, looking really happy and fun. And um, they bought it. <laughs> and then a guy named Jake Burton
0: Carpenter, who really turned them into a phenomenon, he ended up founding a company called Burton Snowboards that's still huge in the industry. How did he come to find out about the snurfer?
1: Absolutely. he's um, So we would have snurfing contests in a place called Blockhouse Hill in Muskegon. And when I say contests, it was just really sheer terror flying straight down a hill, just missing trees. But um, we had the snurfing contest one year, and it, it, there was age groups, and, but everybody was on a snurfer. And then the next year, I think Jake Burton somehow heard about this, was interested, and showed up from Vermont to Muskegon and competed on a snurfer that year. And I do remember I beat him because we're about the same age. But anyway, <laughs> next I guess that <laughs> upset him enough where he uh, went home and he decided to create his own board. And um, came back and people said, no, he can't compete because this isn't a snurfer. And my dad was my dad was stoked that Jake was taking it to another level. He was he was impressed by him. And he said, no, let's create an open division and let people take this, you know, make it more. So they did. And the rest is history. He kept tweaking, tweaking and and brought it to fruition. I think my dad. People have asked why my dad didn't take it all the way. And if I go back to that time, I you have to remember he had my sister, Julie, who was just born and two other daughters and my mom. And, um, you know, he was working his way up in this company. And I think it was just too scary for him to, you know, um, put all his thoughts and his money into something that he didn't wasn't sure was going to make it big.
0: Wendy, thank you for being with us.
1: Yeah, yeah. I miss him.
0: I imagine. Wendy Poppin lives in Fort Collins. Her dad, Sherman Poppin, invented the snurfer, the precursor to the snowboard. The Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture is on a mission. A mission to help people preserve their family history and legacy. And to do that, the museum's Hometown Treasures Program is in Denver this weekend. Vanessa Cogdale-Moore is the program manager. Hi, Vanessa. Good morning, Avery.
8: Why is this type of outreach so important? It's important for individuals to learn how to identify and preserve those things that are very special to them and their families. Last fall, the
0: Smithsonian's Community Curation Project also came to Denver to help families use digital technology to preserve paper and flat mementos like photos. We spoke with one of the participants at the time, Sherilyn Jackson of Boulder. She says her family goes back nine generations in the U.S.
1: I'm bringing uh, lots of photos. My grandfather in his military uniform looking all just dark and dapper i got this really beautiful picture of my grandmother. It's like a portrait of her and she's dressed to the hilt. These things aren't very valuable to anybody, but they are extremely valuable to me.
0: How is the Hometown Treasures program different? And do you think that the family history of African-Americans is more at risk of being lost
8: somehow? So the programs are very similar. Um, One of the things, one of the Big differences between hometown treasures and community curation. Who was here before? Is this program? It gives individuals an opportunity to sit down and meet with museum specialists, who will talk with them about those photos, about their items, um, who just like the participant said, they're very special to them. But they get to talk with them about what they know about the item, and then the specialist, who um, often are curators, conservators, will talk to them about the historical significance and also how to preserve those items.
0: And you described the hometown treasures. It's something like Antiques Roadshow. When someone shows up, what will it look like? What will they experience?
8: So um, lots of excitement in the air. We have wonderful partners with um, Blair Caldwell African American Research Library and the Black American West Museum. So uh, once they arrive, they check in um, with their items. They will then be um, partnered with museum professionals who will sit down with them one-on-one is very intimate um, to share their stories, to talk about their items, to get a review. We also have um, custom archival box makers who will be on site. So if there are things that are very delicate and fragile, they'll make a custom box so that they can store those things.
0: And what are the types of items that people should consider
8: bringing? Um I go back to the uh, participant who talked about those things that are special to them and their families. So we have photos, books, uh, quilts, textiles, collectibles. Um, it's amazing the things that come through the door. Uh, we're, we're actually quite excited about what might be um, a treasure and considered a treasure. So it's it's things that are significant to those individuals.
0: And we should note that this is not about appraising something for money. I'd have to think in many ways, like Sherilyn mentioned, that some of the things that you're seeing, and like you're saying, they're priceless to families. The Hometown Treasures Program, it predates the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Can you share a story of someone who brought a fairly family heirloom to be evaluated?
8: Sure. I'm thinking, we have lots of stories. I mean, I don't, As a group, if there aren't tears at the end of the day, we don't consider it a a successful program, but um, wonderful love letters between parents that date, you know, the early 1900s. Um, We had in Kansas, there was an elderly white woman who shared letters that were between her ancestors and their freed slaves. And it documented um, a continued friendly relationship between them once they moved back to Liberia. So um, just lots of quilts that show the ingenuity and creativity of um, grandmothers, great-grandmothers. It's, it's just an, an array of items.
0: And I want to go back to the importance of this project, especially in the African-American community. Do you think that family history is in danger of being lost in a specific way in African-American families?
8: I, I think for all of us, is at risk of being lost. Um, and I can speak for myself um, when I think of the history that my ancestors, my um, older family members that they're aware of, and just the importance of passing that on. So, you know, if there aren't efforts to document that history, to share it, to preserve those items, then yes, there's definitely a threat of it being lost.
0: Is there ever an instance where this type of outreach leads to an object or a memento ending up in a museum?
8: There are some cases. um, We do have people who are very guarded about the items. You know, they don't want to leave their items with us, and that's perfectly fine. But there have um, been times when there are things that are very significant, special, and rare, um, and and there is an opportunity uh, if that person is interested. It's not the intent, but if they're interested, then there are opportunities for them to be acquired, by museums.
0: And there really is a goal to make sure that these special items stay with families. Yes, for sure. Vanessa, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Vanessa Cogdell-Moore is the program manager of the Smithsonian's Hometown Treasures Program. It will be at the Blair-Caldwell African American Research Library on Saturday and Sunday. It's free and open to the public, but anyone who wants something evaluated needs to register in advance. guest left home at the age of 15 and through her teenage years struggled to maintain her physical and mental health. She lived in her car, shoplifted food and clothing. She eventually escaped through songwriting, going from coffee shop gigs to releasing chart-topping songs like this one.
2: The musician,
0: poet, and Grammy nominee says her early life struggles inspired her to co-found the Wellness Your Way Festival, which comes to the Colorado Convention Center in Denver this weekend. Jewel joins us now. Welcome. Hi. You've been open about your struggles to maintain your wellness as a young person. How did those experiences lead you to pursue a healthier lifestyle?
2: I moved out when I was 15 because my dad and I had a pretty difficult relationship. Um, my mom left when I was eight, and my dad took over raising us, which was great. But he had a lot of PTSD. He grew up in a really abusive household and had a lot of trauma from that, and then went to Vietnam and picked up a little bit more trauma. So he and I you know, had a real splitting of ways. I was 15 when I moved out. And I did pretty good. I knew that statistically kids like me end up repeating the cycle they're raised by. And I didn't want to be a statistic. Um, And I knew to do that, I had to learn a new emotional language. So I kind of oddly knew this and was aware of it at 15 um, and started really studying people and taking notes and working on things that I wanted to change about myself. I did pretty good until I was 18. I was living in San Diego just barely squeaking by on rent and a boss propositioned me and when I wouldn't have sex with him, he fired me and I couldn't pay my rent that month. So I started living in my car because of that. It wasn't because I was trying to pursue a musical dream or (laughs) anything like that. I wasn't even singing at the time. Um, I was just a barista in a coffee shop and this other computer warehouse where I got uh, laid off for not sleeping with him. So that's what got me living in my car. Things went downhill for me pretty quickly. I was having panic attacks. I was agoraphobic. I was shoplifting a lot, shoplifting a lot of food, and I looked in a dressing room mirror one day, I was trying to steal a dress, and I was like, I'm a statistic, didn't beat the odds, like I'm as much of a statistic as you can get, and I'm going to die or end up in jail if I don't figure something out. And I remembered this quote by Buddha that said, happiness doesn't depend on who you are or what you have, it depends on what you think. And I had my thoughts, very little else, but my thoughts to focus on, and it was a strange gift. Because it was the one thing that I really decided to double down on. Um, And so I started writing um, instead of stealing. And that led me to writing a lot of songs. I wrote hundreds and hundreds of songs during that year. And I started singing in the coffee shop and got discovered. But when I was discovered, my goal was always to be a happy human first. My second goal was to be a musician. And this business honestly isn't great for psychology. It's why you see so many artists lost in drugs. It's why you see people have mental breakdowns.
0: And we'll dig into that mental health in just a moment. But I'm curious, when you found yourself alone with these thoughts and you started writing songs, was that when you began songwriting? I'd written some before. I
2: I started writing when I was 16. I was at school and there was a spring. I got a full scholarship to an amazing art school in Michigan. And you weren't allowed to stay on campus for breaks, and I didn't have the money to go home. So I started hitchhiking across the country and through Mexico, because I'm super smart. And I wrote Who Will Save Your Soul. That was my first song. Um, I did it just to make street money, to kind of earn tickets and food and things like that. written quite a few songs, probably. Um, and then when I was homeless, it just became like a real a real thing. I wonder if there's
0: one song in particular that stands out to you as a part of your wellness journey.
2: Probably the song Hands. I wrote a lot of those thoughts and lyrics while I was living in my car um, about the idea that we're not a victim. You know, I part of me always felt mm, that shoplifting was okay because I rationalized it as I'm stealing from the man. No idea who the man is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the faceless entities that all have more than me. It's a real victim mentality. I was beating myself. You know, I was causing myself harm. And I never had seen it that way until I started to really think about it. And so the idea that my hands are my own, nobody, no matter what your situation is, can make you betray your own values. So hands was really about living my values no matter what my circumstances were. Because character is just a bumper sticker until it's tested. You can say you have values, but until you're down and out and you actually have to practice those values, um, then you actually see, you know, can you stick to them? And is that really what your character is? If I could tell the world just one thing, it would be that we're all okay. And not to worry, because worry is wasteful and useless in times like. And then hands went on years later to you know, not only be a hit, but after that, um, during 9-11 became a real anthem. And it was just wild, a very surreal thing to write a song when you're homeless because you're just really trying to figure things out to then have it dedicated to a country at a time like that was pretty amazing.
0: You're the co-founder of the Wellness Your Way Festival, which comes to Denver this weekend. What inspired you to launch the event?
2: It's really for me merging my passion for music and combining it with wellness. I think music is a big part of wellness. Um, We all use it as free therapy. It helps all of us feel better. Um, It's a great friend. But I take what is called a whole human approach. That's how I've approached my own wellness. You can't just have one limb on a body be toned and have the others atrophied without creating a lot of pain. And when you think about our wellness, we might have tone in our career, but our personal relationships might be atrophying or ability to parent well might be atrophying or ability to have physical health might be atrophying or solving for anxiety. So the festival is really about treating the whole human, and giving people curated and trusted opinions and opportunities and tools in those areas. So we're treating the four limbs of being a whole human Mental health, we have thought leaders coming in to give speeches and talks and share ideas that are really cutting edge about trauma, anxiety, um, all kinds of stuff. It's really wonderful. And then we're doing nutrition, where you can really start to get a grip on healthy eating on any kind of budget. We have a lot of celebrity chefs coming in. We have fitness gurus coming in. It's been really fun, like Jillian Michaels and uh, the Tone It Up Girls, all these like people who have just massive followings in the fitness world, which is really neat. And then for kids, like my son's favorite thing is the American Ninja Warrior course for kids. He loves it. Uh, And then we also have medical where we're helping people with um, simple medical screenings because this might be the only time some people get a chance to do this. So it's really fun for me. Um, It's been a lifelong passion in education, and I finally get to really share it.
0: With all these leaders in mental health and physical wellness, what do you hope that attendees take away?
2: I hope attendees find usable skills, things that they know they can do, that they can practice and implement right away. And then beyond that, I hope they start to realize they can dedicate themselves to happiness. It's really within our control, no matter what our circumstances. Nobody can deprive you of your happiness unless you let it. And we sometimes just need help and skill sets and understanding what that is. I want to go back to something
0: you said earlier. You mentioned that the lifestyle of an artist, it can be an unhealthy lifestyle.
2: And I wonder what young artists can do to maintain wellness. I think you have to make a commitment and make it a goal. There's two decisions you should make when you're an artist. Do you want to be a happy human before you want to be an artist? One of the you, – you should put something as your priority. Um, and it's going to affect your decisions. It's going to affect – look, I worked hard. I did, oh my gosh, 900 shows a year probably when I was breaking. I did three cities a day. But I still took time to meditate. I still took time. Now, I could have done better self-care. Don't get me wrong. But it's kind of what it took for me to break through. You're going to work hard, but you also have to take your wellness into consideration and eat well and those things. The other thing I think a young artist should ask themselves is, do they want to be famous or do they want to be an artist? Both are fine. I don't think there's some entity judging like which one you're going to choose. But you need to make that decision because, again, that's going to affect daily decisions for you.
0: Our listeners may not know that you're a part-time Colorado resident. You live in Telluride. What brought you here initially?
2: I was riding motorcycles from Texas to Canada and stumbled on Telluride on a gorgeous sunny day and fell in love. You know, being from Alaska, it's the closest thing to Alaska I can get, so I bought a house there shortly after. And Colorado is
0: often rated as one of the healthiest states in the U.S. Does living here inspire wellness for you? Everybody
2: here is already well. It's actually why we, um, a lot of people here just really do focus on the outdoors and a healthy lifestyle.
0: Um, And you've hinted that you're working on an album inspired
2: by the pursuit of wisdom, Do you have any plans to release new music soon? I think that just describes folk music in general, but (laughs) it doesn't make me unique. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I've been writing a new record. It's been a lot of fun, um, and I'll be releasing it next year along with a book. Joel, thank you for joining us today. Thanks. The Wellness Your Way Festival runs today to Sunday at Denver's
0: Colorado Convention Center. Joel performs Friday at the festival's main stage and Saturday at the Ellie Culkin's Opera House. Thanks for joining us today on Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.